essay three of idle hours in a library by william henry hudson this librivox recording is in the public domain essay three two novelists of the english restoration part two these seven stories therefore are anything but pleasant reading unless they be like certain incidents referred to in the new atlantis pleasant to the ears of the vicious it is not only that they are repulsive because of the undisguised licentiousness that everywhere prevails in them they are occasionally disgusting on account of the large part played by the merely horrible so intimately related are unemotionalized passion and utter brutality that as might be expected here where the one is so conspicuous the other has considerable place the revenge taken by the woman upon her worthless husband in the wife's resentment did recollection of her own wrongs add bitterness to Ravella's pen we may well wonder may be cited as an example of this don rodrigo a spanish gentleman after trying for fifteen months to seduce a poor girl named violenta marries her in a moment of thoughtlessness but keeps the marriage a secret from his friends before long he is forced by his family into a second and public union with a wealthy heiress the news of his inconstancy fills violenta with delirious passion and nothing will appease her but revenge sudden and complete she decoys rodrigo into her apartment murders him while he is asleep and not contented with this deliberately tears out his eyes and mangles his body all over with an infinite number of gashes before throwing it out into the street and what is particularly noteworthy is that the narrator herself does not seem to be in the least impressed by the loathsome details accumulated in her description she reports the incident as though it were a matter of course and quietly tells us that when violenta was brought to justice for her crime the duke the magistrates and all the spectators were amazed at the courage and magnanimity of the maid and that one of so little rank should have so great a sense of her dishonour unquestionably the most pleasing of all these stories alike from a literary and from a moral standpoint is the happy fugitives a simple tale containing comparatively little to which exception could be taken the plots of the physician stratagem and the perjured beauty on the other hand are too hideous to be reproduced as a whole the book is desperately dull and tiresome for the pornographic horrors of its pages are unredeemed by any excellencies of style its only interest for us here therefore is an historic one and about this side of the matter we shall have a general word or two to say later on if morally considered she is equally open to stricture our second woman novelist mrs bain at least bulks out as a more considerable figure in the annals of english letters highly eulogized by some of the most distinguished of her contemporaries dryden otway and southern among the number she must still be spoken of with the respect due to her undoubted talents versatility industry and courage that she is to be regarded as an honor and glory to her sex as one of her enthusiastic admirers roundly declared it would now for many reasons be out of the question to maintain 
but the one fact that she was the first woman of her country to support herself entirely by the pen itself establishes her right to a certain place in the long line of female writers who have since her day done so much for literature afra or afara johnson afterwards bain known as the divine astrea in the exuberant language of the time and long commonly referred to as an extraordinary woman was born towards the end of the reign of charles i while still a girl she was taken to the west indies by her father who had been appointed lieutenant-general of Suriname johnson himself died at sea and never arrived to possess the honour designed him but the family settled in the colony a land flowing with milk and honey they are said to have found it and continued to reside there till about sixteen fifty three a high-coloured description of her life abroad is given in her best-known work as it was during this period that she made her hero's acquaintance and became interested in the story of his love and tragic fate it is characteristic of the tendencies of the age that her biographer should feel it necessary to pause at this point in her narrative to contradict some current town gossip about the kind of relationship which had existed between astrea and the african prince returning to england she married a man named bain who seems to have been a merchant in the city though of dutch extraction but concerning whom our information is of the most meagre sort of him we hear little or nothing in connection with aphra's subsequent adventurous career and she was a widow before sixteen sixty six attached to the court of charles the second she attracted so much attention we are told by her keenness of intellect alertness and wit that she was employed by the merry monarch in some delicate diplomatic affairs during the dutch war this took her to antwerp in the character of a spy in which capacity she succeeded so well that in course of time and by means principally of her innumerable love intrigues she obtained possession of some secrets of considerable value they are mistaken who imagine that a dutchman can't love remarks her biographer in commenting upon these incidents for though they are generally more phlegmatic than other men yet it sometimes happens that love does penetrate their lump and dispense an enlivening fire now and then with disastrous results as we perceive her information however was neglected by the english government and in disgust the patriotic lady threw up politics and diplomacy altogether and presently returned to london narrowly escaping death by shipwreck on the way once more in london mrs bain now thrown entirely upon her own resources turned to her pen for the means of support and thenceforth continued to occupy herself with literature and pleasure till her death in sixteen eighty nine say what one may about the general quality of her work its total amount remains remarkable especially when one takes into consideration the conditions of poverty failing health and many harassing distractions under which it was produced for a number of years with unabated industry but varying success she poured out plays which were calculated in style and morality to hit the prevailing taste and so boldly did she meet her masculine rivals on the common ground of licentiousness that she earned for herself the highly significant nickname of the female witcherly 
miscellaneous tracts and translations kept her busy in the intervals of dramatic activity during which time she also threw off a couple of very curious treatises the characters of which are perhaps sufficiently indicated by their titles the lover's watch or the art of making love and the lady's looking-glass to dress herself by or the whole art of charming all mankind as manuals of conduct it is to be feared that these lucubrations hardly tend to edification finally to leave out for the moment what is of course for us now the most important item her experiments in fiction which we will deal with by themselves mrs bain also managed to write and publish a good deal of verse as work actually done this must be mentioned because it swells her account but it may be said at once that most of it and particularly her one ambitious effort the allegorical voyage to the isle of love is without value or interest here and there in her plays however she touches a true poetic note as in the really fine song in abdelazar for which though it is doubtless familiar to readers of the anthologies space may be found here love in fantastic triumph sate whilst bleeding hearts about him flowed for whom fresh pains he did create and strange tyrannic power he showed from thy bright eyes he took his fires which round about in space he hurled but twas from mine he took desires enough to undo the amorous world from me he took his sighs and tears from thee his pride and cruelty from me his languishment and fears and every killing dart from thee thus thou and i the god have armed and set him up a deity but my poor heart alone is harmed while thine the victor is and free her biographer tells us that mrs bain was a woman of sense and by consequence mark the consequence a lover of pleasure as indeed it is added all both men and women are though some would be thought above the conditions of humanity and place their chief pleasure in a proud vain hypocrisy it needs hardly be said here that i am not at all concerned to defend the character of astrea's life or the tone of her writings and at this time of day any denunciation of the one or the other would surely be a work of supererogation but we should at least try to be fair in our judgments and if the very flattering description given by one of the fair sex who knew her intimately is even approximately correct she must have been generous frank and thoroughly good-hearted these are not bad qualities in a world which in practice knows only too little about them though we might hesitate to add with her anonymous friend that being thus endowed she was i am satisfied a greater honour to her sex than all the canting tribe of dissemblers that die with the false reputation of saints so far as her writings themselves are concerned it has only to be said that when she found herself dependent for a livelihood upon her talents and industry she took what seemed to be the shortest and easiest way open to success and undertook to produce just what the reading public of her day was most willing to pay for and the reading public of her day was unfortunately ready to pay highest for the most wanton and scandalous things 
herein she was neither better nor worse than the majority of her contemporaries who like her wielded the professional pen though the fact that she was a woman undoubtedly adds anusness to her offence against the ordinary decencies of life let any one of common sense and reason she says in her own defence and the circumstance that like dryden and others she was driven into explanation and apology is noteworthy read one of my comedies and compare it with others of this age and if they find one word which can offend the chastest ear i will submit to all their peevish cavils this is the familiar argument however bad i may be my neighbours are a trifle worse i should be very sorry for mrs bain's sake to take up her challenge sorrier for my own to have it supposed that what has been said above was said in the way of palliation or excuse mrs bain wrote foully and this for most of us and very properly is an end of the whole discussion but it is as idle in these matters of sentiment taste expression as it is elsewhere to ignore in any final judgment the subtle but profound influence of the time spirit and though we may regret that such a distinction should have to be made we must still in common fairness remember that mrs bain was a woman of the seventeenth century and not of our own generation but we must now turn to her novels her incomparable novels as they used to be called the collected edition of seventeen o five containing according to its own statement all the histories and novels written by the late ingenious mrs bain includes besides the two treatises to which reference has been made the following stories the history of oronoco or the royal slave the fair jilt the nun agnes de castro the lucky mistake memoirs of the court of the king of bantam and the adventure of the black lady the first mentioned of these oronoco the novel with which mrs bain's name is to-day almost exclusively associated is from every point of view by far the most interesting of her works it represents the first really noteworthy experiment in the fiction of the time to descend from the misty realms of the old romance to the plain ground of actual life the history which as miss kavanagh has said is the only one of her tales that despite all its defects can still be read with entertainment was written at the special request of charles the second to whom mrs bain on her return from the west indies had given so pleasant and rational an account of his affairs there and particularly of the misfortunes of oronoco that he desired her to deliver them publicly to the world the narrative is indeed represented by the author as a direct transcript from her own experiences i was she says myself an eye-witness to a great part of what you will hear fine set down and what i could not be witness of i received from the mouth of the chief actor in this history the hero himself the motive of the story is the tragedy of oronoco's life and this is worked out simply but with a good deal of power the grandson of an african king and a youth of great strength courage and intelligence oronoco early becomes enamoured of imoinda a beauty that to describe her truly one need only say she was female to the noble male but to whom unfortunately his grandfather also takes a fancy 
the young people are secretly married notwithstanding which the old king has the girl carried to his palace and placed among his mistresses in desperation the husband makes his way by night to imoenda's chamber here he is discovered by the king's guards imoenda is sold into slavery and after a while oronoko shares the same fate a lion taken in a toil by a remarkable coincidence they are brought at length to the same place the colony where aphra and her family were then living thus unexpectedly reunited to the woman he had deemed lost to him forever oronoko is for a time contented with his lot but presently growing weary of captivity he plans a revolt among the slaves upon the suppression of which he is brutally punished after this he escapes to the woods with his young wife whose fidelity and never-failing devotion are very touchingly set forth then comes the final tragedy dreading that she may fall into the hands of the whites he deliberately and with her full consent murders her and after remaining for several days half insensible beside her corpse he is again taken by the colonists and hacked to pieces limb by limb with his death the simple story ends now in the first and casual reading of this novel we may very probably be struck rather by its points of similarity to the older romances than by its qualities of essential difference from them for mrs bain frequently adopts the heroic or a big bow wow strain especially in her sentimental situations and where she desires to be particularly effective her language is often stilted and conventional and there are occasions when we are more than half convinced that surinam is after all only another way of spelling arcadia but further study of the work will convince us that we must not attach too much importance to what are really superficial characteristics in the deeper matters of substance and purpose the story belongs not to the old school of fiction but to the new and that mrs bain herself understood what she was about is i think made clear by what she says in the opening paragraph i do not pretend in giving you the history of this royal slave to entertain my reader with the adventures of a feigned hero whose life and fortunes fancy may manage at the poet's pleasure nor in relating the truth designed to adorn it with any accidents but such as arrived in earnest to him and it shall come simply into the world recommended by its own proper merits and natural intrigues there being enough of realities to support it and to render it diverting without the addition of invention two points then are noticeable in this work in the first place it depends for its interest not on astonishing adventures high-flown diction or extravagant play of fancy but rather on the sterling humanity of the narrative the unfortunate hero and his wife are of course drawn upon the heroic scale but they still possess the solid traits of real manhood and womanhood and applying the supreme test in all such cases we find that we can believe in them the chasm which separates such an achievement as this from the windy sentimentalities of the anglo-french romances is a very wide one and mrs bain's boldness of innovation was therefore the more remarkable in the second place oronoko is written with a well-defined didactic aim it is a novel with a purpose the remote forerunner of uncle tom's cabin and the whole modern school of ethical fiction 
thus together with a marked tendency towards realism mrs bain's book exhibits a no less marked bias in the direction of practical teaching its historic significance is therefore twofold mrs bain's other tales show less originality and are neither so attractive nor so valuable they are short love stories which though not so radically and aggressively impure as her plays are still tainted through and through by the prevailing grossness of the time like mrs manley mrs bain makes mere physical appetite the passion which rages beyond the inspirations of a god all soft and gentle and reigns more like a fury from hell the turning point of all her plots like mrs manley she centres the entire interest of her narratives in the gratification not in the influences of this passion like mrs manley too and here the severest judgment might well pass unprotested she is as harsh and free-spoken as the most profligate of male cynics regarding the foibles of her own sex vain selfish salacious intriguing spiteful her female figures as a whole are simply repulsive in their unqualified animality and as we read of their lives and their doings we no longer wonder at the open savagery of a witcherly or the undisguised contempt of a congreve in an age when a woman could thus write of women without fear almost without reproach finally like mrs manley mrs bain is ready at times to indulge not only in scenes of the utmost coarseness but also in pictures of the most revolting brutality an instance of this might be given from the fair jilt where the unskilful execution of tarquin is detailed with horrible minuteness the best of these shorter stories is the lucky mistake a tale written throughout with comparatively good taste they are merely all based on fact many on direct observation and this renders them from a student's point of view interesting but there is a great sameness in the incidents described and on the side of characterization they are very weak indeed the plots are all made up out of the same classes of material and the men and women of any one story are hardly to be distinguished otherwise than by name from those of any other and now in returning to the question of the historic significance of the two writers into whose books habitually allowed to stand undisturbed upon the library shelf we have here rather rashly ventured to pry we shall find if i mistake not that little remains to be said brief as our analysis of the heroic romances and the tales of mrs bain and mrs manley has necessarily been it will if it does not fail entirely of its purpose suffice to mark the points of fundamental contrast between them the nature and importance of the changes exemplified in these story-tellers of the restoration will thus be made clear hitherto as we have seen fiction had made little or no attempt to deal frankly with life in other words it had not as yet found its proper sphere purely a thing of the imagination it had sought its subjects afar proudly ignoring the common matters of the world the joys and sorrows the hopes and struggles of everyday humanity the words which the author of a life of sydney prefixed to one of the early editions of the arcadia applies to that work we might with equal fairness apply to almost the entire mass of fiction thus far written 
the invention is wholly spun out of the fancy he says the scene was laid in some far-away dreamland and the less remote and visionary because occasionally called by a familiar earthly name the characters were swollen out to superhuman proportions and were endowed with qualities that no mortal being has ever been known to possess their adventures were on the face of them impossible they thought acted talked as no man or woman had thought acted talked since the world began life and fiction stood entirely apart the real world of tangible flesh and blood found for the time its only expression in the drama in the fiction there was as yet no human interest whatever with mrs bain commenced the tendency to deal with life to make the novel in some sense a reproduction of actual experiences we may regret that the special phases of the human comedy that she deliberately chose to write about were only too often phases the least worthy of attention that her interests were narrowed down and her work crippled by considerations of the most cramping and disastrous kinds that she knew nothing of proportion and perspective and little of the higher and finer developments of motive and character that she could not see life steadily and did not see it whole but all this must not stand in the way of our insisting that she was one of the first writers of prose fiction perhaps the first in england to substitute the solid stuff of reality for the flimsy material of the imagination crude and partial as her observations were she at least observed sorry as are most of the results of her study of the world she did study it at first hand did hold the mirror up to nature what she accomplished in thus opening up the field of the modern novel what mrs manley accomplished in following her lead are matters therefore of sufficient importance to call for distinct recognition we do not claim for the books of these two women any individual merit or interest but when we lay aside one of their stories bearing in mind the conditions of the time at which it was written we realize that artistically if not always morally they represent a step in advance that it was by such work as this poor and hopelessly dull as it may seem to us to-day that the folios of la calpeneda and descutery were overthrown the way made clear for defoe and richardson and the foundations of modern fiction firmly laid but now let us notice the suggestive circumstances that like nearly all innovators these first realists seriously overstepped the mark in their early attempts to exchange fairyland for the actual world we find too large a place given to fact in the most hard and circumscribed sense of the word in place of pure fancy they sought to give absolute and undiluted reality in place of a picture without existing counterpart they strove to secure the detailed verisimilitude of a photograph indeed for a time the aims and methods of fiction were almost entirely lost sight of and it is easy to see how this unfortunate result was brought about weary of the conventionalities of the old romances and of the shadowy heroes and heroines with whose tedious adventures and even more tedious disquisitions their pages were filled the novelists of the restoration made a bold endeavor to get back to the life with which they were familiar and to deal with the world as they knew it to exist but for the moment there seemed only one way of doing this 
instead of fancy they must have fact instead of wandering off into the impossible they must limit themselves to the things which had actually happened which had really in charles reed's witty phrase gone through the formality of taking place hence for the present the constructive work of the imagination which some of us in these days of so-called naturalism are still old-fashioned enough to hold essentially important was almost entirely neglected nearly every story was statedly founded on fact and the business of the novelist was practically reduced to the task of presenting with but slight embellishment or rearrangement specific occurrences in life thus we have an early example of the tendency uh, just now so conspicuous towards what monsieur brunetiere has happily called reportage in literature in the reaction against the school of heroic romance the new story-writers therefore went to the other extreme to take the materials of familiar existence and to reorganize them thus producing a work of art which is at once all compact of truth and imagination was for the time being beyond their ken to their limited view realism meant slavish reality it was only after this mistake had been made that the possibility of avoiding the airy unrealities of old romance without being bound down to the skeleton facts of life gradually became apparent the discovery that a writer could be true to experience and human nature without necessarily reproducing actual events or photographing individual men and women was the outcome of many experiments and much failure and was at length hit upon in a half-blind and fortuitous way it was only little by little that the element of acknowledged fiction was allowed to encroach upon the domain of truth only little by little that people began to understand that the art of fiction and the art of lying are not one and the same and that the boldest play of imagination in the treatment of life is not always to be associated with the distortion of reality in the works of mrs manley and mrs bain we see the english novel stumbling painfully towards the comprehension of its own objects we have reached firm ground and that is a great achievement for only when we move on firm ground is the novel possible but the dead weight of the actual is too heavy for us we cannot synthesize the results of experience we gather observations but we are unable to make artistic productions out of them thus we have a new atlantis and the book is historically significant just for this reason which is little more than a jumble of personal scandal filled in with occasional false incidents and mendacious details an orinoco which is rather a fanciful biography than a tale we have a wife's resentment a fair jilt and a lucky mistake stories all of which are based more or less exclusively on historic occurrences or on events that had come under the direct observation of the relators even where there is a lack of truth the appearance of truth is still carefully preserved things which have not actually happened are nevertheless related as facts real characters are put through unreal incidents the novel is supposed to give history fiction and falsehood are as yet confused with this brief summary of the qualities and shortcomings of our two women novelists this little paper might properly close 
but it may be interesting if having carried our inquiry thus far we add a paragraph about the way in which the rigid reality of the works at which we have been glancing grew gradually out into the genuine realism of the later novel properly to understand this tendency towards an equilibrium between fact and imagination we should turn aside to examine the profound influence exerted over the fiction of the time of the tatler and the spectator but for our present purposes we shall find the movement forward clearly enough exemplified in the work of one man the author of robinson crusoe whose writings therefore we will take as our clue beginning with the production of history or semi-history in which real characters slightly exaggerated move through real scenes or through scenes to but small extent imaginary defoe proceeded little by little to import more of fiction into his narrative to the detriment of the small substratum of truth still retained by and by he did no more than preserve the mere framework of history as in the journal of the plague year and uh, the memoirs of a cavalier in which most of the characters and many of the incidents are purely fictitious after this the remaining element of truth was gradually eliminated and he reached the production of narratives of fictitious characters in fictitious settings and among fictitious scenes from writing biographies with real names attached to them says professor minto in his life of defoe it was but a short step to writing biographies with fictitious names even when that short step was taken the artifices resorted to by him to preserve the apparent truthfulness of his narrations show us that he was by no means satisfied that it would be desirous to let matters of fact slip out of his work entirely though what he wrote was false he still tried to palm it off upon the world as true this makes the writing of defoe more like lying than fiction and goes far to explain the extraordinary minuteness of the circumstantial method adopted by him but it marks also the transitional quality of his work as mr leslie stephen has neatly put it defoe's novels are simply history minus the facts only in his latest works do we find this pseudo-history making way for fiction proper and then we recognize in defoe the distinct forerunner of the great novelists of the eighteenth century but to follow this matter farther would take us beyond the due bounds already somewhat transgressed of our present study as we may now see the story of english fiction from the period of the anglo-french romance to the time of fielding and smollett is a long one and we have undertaken to deal with only one chapter here the chapter which tells of mrs bain and mrs manley of what they did and of what they failed to do that finished our task is at an end end of essay three part two